Hello, and welcome to Cousin Chat, where we talk about what matters. I'm your host, Donna Pizant, and today we are talking about autism. It's still April, and it's Autism Awareness Month, and every year that God blesses me with an opportunity to have this platform, I will release an episode in April dedicated to Autism Awareness Month. So as you know, I always have people on here who know what they're talking about. So joining me today for this chat is Melanie Austin Balaputra. Melanie, say hello to the people. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me on Cousin Chat. Thank you for being here. So the way that I um, found out that she would be the perfect guest for the show is I was scrolling on Facebook. Yes, I scroll. Okay. So I was scrolling and I saw a picture of this cute little boy and he had on a t-shirt. It was awesome. I was like, oh my God. And then I found out it was her son. He looked so cute. So then I said, you know what? That's who I need for this episode. And she agreed and I'm so grateful. So Melanie, we're just going to jump right in. Okay. Okay. So, um, one of the things that I would like to talk about first is, um, early detection, you know, for, for parents who have a child and they're not sure and they might suspect or whatever, what suggestions do you have for parents who might suspect that their child has autism or, you know, they just really want to check and see if everything is okay in that area? Well, I would love to tell you that I was one of those parents that was fully aware and knew exactly what I was doing and um, had a plan or at least had some awareness of it. I I really didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, as an educator, I have friends with um, lots of educators and we were at a barbecue. I remember it was Labor Day weekend. We were at a barbecue at a friend's house. and one of my other friends was there and she's a spe- both of them were special education. They were retired special educators. And my friend said to me, you know, you might want to have a speech looked at. And at the time my son was three about, he was actually two about to turn three. Mm-hmm. So we called, New Jersey has early intervention services for students that may have, have delays. Could be a speech delay, could be a cognitive delay, um, could be some type of physical. They're not walking when they, they're not hitting those early milestones. It could be anything. Um, you can call for New Jersey Early Intervention Services and they'll send someone to your home to evaluate your child. Um, you can have that conversation with your pediatrician. You can call them directly. And I made the phone call. My And it's up to from zero from birth to three years old where students can receive intervention services or evaluations. My son was almost three, so he was able to, his birthday's in November, we started this process in September. He was able to be fully evaluated for speech and occupational therapy and um, physical therapy. And they test all these different developmental markers in your child and they let you know which ones are in the normal range and which ones aren't. Mm-hmm. We called them initially just for speech, that his speech was delayed. Um, and as it turns out, he was, uh, at least two standard deviations away from the normal range in every indicator except gross motor, which means he could run and jump like on par with his peers and everything else in terms of speaking and 
responding and all these other um, mild age markers, he was not meeting any of the the, um, the benchmarks. He was accepted for early intervention services, and that's how we started down the road of um, an autism diagnosis. Okay, but and that process for any delay that your child might have it doesn't it's not just limited to autism. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's good to know. So for a parent who, okay, like I guess in your case, like once a parent finds out that, okay, it is autism, it has been diagnosed, we understand what it is, now we begin the process of accepting, what is the next step or, you know, you could even say what you did or what you suggest, you know, should be the next step after getting a definite diagnosis of autism? We were fortunate in that we, while we had, we had to see a private developmental pediatrician to get, to go through the diagnosis process, we also saw uh, people at Hackensack Meridian Hospital in the, they have a center called the Home for Autism. So in working with the staff there in terms of um, certain evaluations for our son, they also have support groups. So I think the number one thing that any parent would need is that access to a support group. And it was interesting how, you know, that first meeting is, is rough, but you're in a meeting where it's not everybody's first meeting. So you have people there that are a little bit, they're not far down the road, but they're a little bit further down the road than you are to kind of lean on. And then ultimately you become that person for somebody else. I think that's critical. I think the second thing, if you are in a two-parent situation, is to not put the, have that heavy expectation that the two of you are going to view this exactly the same and be in the same place at the same time in terms of acceptance and how we're going to move and what we're going to do next. You kind of, it, it is, you have to give yourself some grace in this. Um, and your partner or co-parenting partner, if it's you and a parent, your parent, if it's a multi-generational household, you have to give the family some grace in how everybody's path through this may be a little bit different as long as everyone's still focused on the well-being of the child. But to say we have to agree on everything so we can be a lockstep or it's going to be a disaster, I think you can't put that kind of pressure on on yourself to, to move forward. Right. That That is such good advice. You know, it takes me to... Um, the classroom actually in terms of you know people knowing how to work with uh, children with autism but you know we're both in education so I think understanding how to work with children who have autism is extremely important yes it's important to especially if you're going to be in an inclusion situation it's important to educate the students in the classroom a little bit about autism if a student who has autism is going to be in the classroom so they're not shocked by certain things and, you know, like stemming, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about what that is or what it may look like or how it may appear or just, cause I know it could be so many things. It can. It um, really it's, can. It, it's stemming is where, and it's not just people on the autism spectrum. I think all of us do something that's self-stimulating, that soothes mm-hmm. us, that we all have different ticks and quirks that we do. Um, but people on the spectrum tend to have more noticeable 
stemming and it's more consistent. Sometimes it's rocking, sometimes it's flapping their arms. They call it flapping, they're waving their hands and they do things like this. Or um, a lot of it, for, for my son, a lot of his is auditory slash musical. That he, it, it appears as if he speaks his own language. That is, it sounds like elephants Fitzgerald scatting. Like he's just kind of like all the, all the time. Um, his is more auditory. So, and his sensitivity is more auditory. Different people on the spectrum have different sensitivities. Some of them are visual in terms of light and sensitivity to light. Some people have more sensitivity toward noises, loud noises or certain noises. But I think that is just a magnification of what all humans do. I know I'm sensitive to certain noises, certain sounds and certain, certain things. But in my son, I think it's, it's magnified at a much greater level. Um, but STEMI can be physical, it can be verbal, it can be um, it all sorts. It, it manifests itself in so many different ways. But there are certain, if it's something that's a noise related in a classroom, you have a student making constant noises, that's something that other students need to be aware of and the teacher needs to be sensitive to in terms of, you can't just say shush. You have to have certain techniques to try to bring them out of it so that they can, um, their noise level will be more conducive for the classroom that they share with other people. Right. I, I was um, in class one day and we were, I have older students. So the students I work with are in high school. And uh, we were talking about public speaking. They were getting ready to do some kind of speech and I gave them the rubric and all that. And I was telling them practice in the mirror so you can see what you look like. You know, you want to be careful not to do the little things like rocking, you know, like, you know, the, the those things, right? right? And so I had a student ask me, he said, do you take points off for stemming? See, this is a student who is self-aware. Yes. Because, you know, one thing I think it's important for people to understand is that autism does not look the same in everybody. It does not. It can be on the spectrum. Now, he understood that he's on the spectrum. Right. And so that's one of the things that he knows that he does. And so he wanted to make sure that I was aware as well, so that if I saw him doing whatever the thing is that he was gonna do, that I wouldn't take points off because he can't help it. You know what I mean? It's something that is, it's an anxiety thing. You know, it's right. an anxiety, I believe, release or something like that. Yes. So I assured him, I was like, no, no points will be taken off for stemming. But I was really impressed <laughs> that he asked to kind of self-advocate, you know? Right. As right. opposed to just getting up there, doing that and thinking I'm taking points off, you know? So that I think it's so good when older uh, children with um, autism or on the spectrum somewhere are self-aware and they can right. advocate for themselves. That I think is such a blessing. And you know, just sticking with the classroom as a as an administrator, how important? I know you said it's important for teachers to, um, you know, understand so they can help the students. But how important do you think it is for teachers to really understand how to work with a student who has autism? Like, because I know when I was a brand new teacher, nobody told me anything. 
Right. And I did have a student who came in, you know, it was inclusion and in an inclusion situation. And (laughs) she was so sweet. This was sixth grade. And Mm -hmm. I found out, I won't say the hard way, but I found out early that she did not like working in groups. Mm-hmm. But had I known, to, you know, that this, that she was coming, I could have done some preparation or the person, you know, sending her could have alerted me, like, you know, just something. But here I am, first year teacher, and it's this sweet girl. And as soon as I put them in groups, of course, she's like, well, I don't want to work with anybody. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to work. Can I just work by myself? You know, and so I would never have put her in that situation because she was verbal, but there were just certain things that she would do, like she was very artistic. Her art skills were amazing. I remember her name to this day. But uh, I would never have put her in that situation had I been aware that the socialization thing was something that made her uncomfortable, you know? And so, you know, because she, she was already coming in this situation with students who were in the sixth grade. So mm-hmm. you know how kids kids are kids. Right. So then she doesn't want to work with anybody. And in their mind, oh, you don't want to work, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. But had I known I could have prepared, you know, differently. The, yeah. Yes, I could have just handled everything differently. It ended up working out well. But as a vice principal, what would you suggest to teachers who are going to be working with students, even new teachers who are going to be working in a school and they don't know if they're going to have an autistic student in the classroom or not? What well, suggestions I, would you make? I think that okay, this is a very complicated question. As an educator, as someone who, I think that all teacher preparation programs in order to become a teacher, I think you need to take in a class and just something, so an introduction to students with disabilities or yeah. exceptional children. And that would include students that are gifted in a different way also. Um, I think understanding about learning differences is a key part of what we do as teachers. Even if everybody in your classroom is technically general education, they still learn different. Multiple intelligences, all the different ways in which the, all of the different ways in which we can be geniuses. Um, I think as educators, that's our primary role is to understand how to pull the genius out of each individual child. Mm-hmm. Fact. When you add the complexity of different ways learners learn that have titles to them, cognitive impairment, autism, whatever language development delayed or whatever the labels are, understanding the best coaching for how to bring the genius out of that child is important. Now, if you graduated from a program that didn't offer you any formal coursework in students with disabilities, as you're going to the classroom to have a conversation with your hiring administrative team about what professional development resources available to you, doesn't mean they're necessarily gonna give you a workshop. There might be resources in the school library, there might be online resources that the school pays for that you can access but your biggest resource for me as a teacher is more experienced teachers to lean on rely on during your prep period go watch in the classroom of a teacher who's better at this than you are and deal with whatever the the particular challenge you have on that day i think 
I've learned a lot. I learned a lot in terms of formal education. I was fortunate enough to have a master's degree in education before I became a teacher. So I came <laughs> with some book knowledge, some, and I also did my formal 15 weeks of apprenticeship teaching. I did my field experiences and all of those traditional route type things, but nothing prepares you for the day the classroom is yours. I don't care how much, there's nothing in the world to prepare you for, you're in it. Now you got to do it. Um, but relying on more experienced teachers, veteran teachers, people who are experts in that area, special education teachers, child study team members in your school, people who specialize in whatever label or learner type that you're dealing with, there are people in your building that have more experience than you. Watch them, rely on them, accept resources from them. Ask them occasionally to come and watch you to give you some coaching on things you could do differently. Um, I think those are all critical pieces, but I learned how to be a good teacher from watching good teachers. Mm -hmm. I think that is really important, you know, to, especially if you are a seasoned teacher, but you're not seasoned in the area of special needs, you can still learn something. Oh, for sure. You can still learn, like, I don't care how long you've been teaching. When you are not experienced in, you know, working with special needs, there are different ways that those educators approach things that they won't be the same way that we do things. And so our way, I won't say our way, but I'll just say the regular ed teacher's way is not always correct. It doesn't matter how long you've been teaching. But I had that conversation with my building principal when I was a brand new teacher and he was trying to give me some coaching um, yet to, and I'd known him when he was a teacher and he was a great teacher, but his content area was different from mine. And we kind of got to a debate. I was like, no matter how experienced you are, what you do, and you, I know firsthand what a good teacher you are. You're a cardiologist and I'm an oncologist. And you are the world's greatest cardiologist, but I'm a first date oncologist. And the person has cancer. You're 25 years of cardiology. Some of it will help, but it still is an oncology. I need an oncologist. Can you give me one? Can you give me somebody to come in here who's done what I have to do? And that's where we got to the debate about some skills are transferable in education, things are not. I said, if you had cancer, would you want the 25-year veteran cardiologist or do you want the day one oncologist? I'm going with the day one oncologist because I have cancer. That's just how this goes. So I think the best teachers that I've worked with were people that were reflective. They were confident in what they knew, but they knew they, they, knew they did not know everything. And right. they were open and eager to learn something that would improve their professional practice. I mean, people say lifelong learner, learners, that's a very real concept, especially in this business. But there's always something new coming into your classroom that you have to learn and master and meet the needs of that child. And I think that's what attracts me to this business, that I'm never bored. There's always something new, a kid that's done done something different. I was like, okay, I've never seen that before. How we make that work? <laughs> I'll never get bored in the industry that I'm in, but the best veteran teachers that I've worked with have always been the ones that were the most open and um, most reflective about 
what they needed to do to improve their professional practice. Yeah, and in the school I was in first, like the, the same school where I had the young lady, you know, who didn't like working in groups, we had a lot of autistic classes or autism classes in, in the mm -hmm. building. And right. um, I had a lot of good teachable moments for my class because the office where um, a lot of them would go for, you know, counseling or, you know, how you have, they may have one-on-one -on -one meetings or whatever, or right. small classes across the hall or something. And every now and then one kid would just come in. He would come in my room running because he was a runner. So he ran in the room and he would just go in, go around and then go right back out. And right. that's just what he would do. And mm -hmm. so it gave me a good opportunity just to just explain to the students, you know, who were in there, this is so-and-so. He will do this from time to time. <laughs> you know, don't be alarmed. Because, I mean, it could be jarring. You're just sitting in class and all of a sudden this kid just runs in. He was young. So th this was more, he was more like a, a third grader or a second grader or something like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, he just ran in and then a teacher would just come stand in the door like, you know, and I'm like, it's okay. You know, because we knew he didn't mean any harm. He right. wasn't going to do anything. He was going to run in and he was going to run out. Then we had another one who was a hider. Sometimes he would run in and just hide behind the chalkboard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the teacher would be like, come on, Peter. You know, and then he would come from behind, the, you know. But it, it was really a good opportunity for my students to learn about autism and that there's right. nothing wrong with these children, you know, in the sense that they're people just like you. They just have certain things that they do and they learn differently, you know. But I think that's the beauty of an inclusion setting for students where possible, um, especially the younger students are being in, learning in an environment where they're all different types of learners. They mm -hmm. roll with the punches a lot better, but they tend to nothing really phases them. You've been around students that are different since kindergarten. Oh, that's just Peter. Yeah. Peter, we're about to go play. You want to come? No? Okay. Maybe tomorrow. Like they are more flexible and fluid with being understanding and accepting of their peers and trying to incorporate their peers. Um, I've seen, I'm always amazed by the capacity of students to be accepting. Um, I, I currently work in an environment where all of our full-time students have, are students with disabilities of one type or another. Um, their cognitive disabilities are still in the mild range, but there are all sorts of learning differences. They have students with major anxiety issues, students on the autism spectrum, students that have some cognitive delays, but just the acceptance among them, um, maybe because it's a county school and they've come from different districts where they may have been one or two students in their class that were like that, and they're now in a school where there are more students that have disabilities, um, there tends to be a level of, it, of acceptance. Um, and I, that feels good to see. I've also worked, I've worked in a middle school, middle school level. That's where the majority of my teaching experience came from. I've been an administrator at an elementary school and an administrator at the high school level. Um, but el the elementary level is where it's really fascinating in terms of how accepting students are, how they will modify their own schedule, playtime activities to include and to make sure that they include everybody. Um, 
I think that's where the, the notion of inclusion education comes from, that if you put all the learners in the same place, people will grow. Everybody grows from, from having that experience. And I've seen that firsthand. And I think that's so wonderful. Well, listen, thank you all who are listening out there. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I want to just remind you that if you would like to follow Cousin Chat, and I hope you do, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have a YouTube channel where the videos of these conversations are posted. And uh, if you want to go to the website to listen to all the other episodes that are there, that's at cousinchat.com c-u-z-n-c-h-a-t dot com and before we leave I, we always leave you with something to think about and so today is no different one thing I would say to take away with you today is that if you are a parent who is wondering if your child might have autism please go get the check that um, the checkup that um, Melanie was talking about earlier. Um, I think it's important. Early detection is so important. You want to get your child the help he or she needs and you want to get it early. And there might be some slight denial and I totally understand that, but you, it's better to know so that your child can get a head start in you know, his or her development. Uh, Melanie, do you have anything to add to the takeaway? Definitely. If the first place you start when you have any kind of concern about what's going on with your child, it would probably be your pediatrician. There are a lot of, you can do a lot of research online and there are a lot of resources like Autism Speaks and, and organizations out there that have um, toolkits and questionnaires on the websites, but uh, the pediatrician is probably the first place I would go if I had some questions and then they can provide you with resources to then proceed from there. Um, there are Facebook groups, like mom, different mom groups and parent groups of students with whatever type of disability that you feel you might be confronted with. Having mom friends and dad friends that my husband and I could lean on, whose children may be two or three years older than ours, um, who've been, who've walked that road a few years before we did, having people to rely on um, has been invaluable and then it made us be the type of people where we do that for someone else so it's just there are resources out there resources available but I think the first step would probably be if your child is in school your child's teacher and then also your pediatrician wonderful well I'm Donna that's Melanie and until we come back to our next cousin chat think about all of that be blessed everybody bye-bye thank you thank you for having me Bye, everybody.